the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I am another one of your hosts. I am Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I am the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State. The last host of the last episode of 2023. Uh, very excited to reach the end of the year here. Uh, we've had a good 2023. We've been talking behind the scenes. We've had a lot of good times this year uh, and seen a rise in listeners. So welcome aboard to all of the new folks that have joined the show this year. We hope that you've been digging it. Uh, we're This is episode 150, a bit of a milestone. It's 150-ish. We're not entirely sure uh, how inaccurate that is, but it's around there. Yeah. You'd feel like with just 150 episodes-ish, we would know exactly how many we have. But, uh, you know, that's that's just how accurate we are with things. Sometimes we count them as episodes. Sometimes there's special non-numbered episodes. Yeah, we just vibe on those ones. They're just little mini episodes and we didn't give them a number. Uh, they just float around in the podcast ether. Yeah, we got to see each other in real life and actually present in real life together. We did. In April uh, at Purdue. Up at Purdue. That was our uh, Arthropod Goes Home episode that we did earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And I got to announce a scholarship that my family has created for a Purdue student. And I named it Arthro-Pod Scholarship. I was I was glad you were picking up on the, the traction that I was trying to build towards your announcement. Oh, so. oh yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for allowing me to say that. We call that a segue in the biz, everybody. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, you got to uh, put that out. It was kind of a, an interesting process, but now there's a, a, a funded scholarship that st- undergrad students at Purdue will be able to apply for. I believe so. And as a student who is in need, I know that I would not have been able to be a successful grad student there if I didn't receive, like, I think it was like $1,000 to buy my first 50-pound laptop computer. Mm-hmm. I think it was really that way. It was huge and it was big, but I was not able to do any work outside of the lab or office without it. So that really contributed to being able to work and be a grad student. My husband and I just really decided we wanted to do something good for the future of entomologists because we all need more bug people. And there was no better name than to use our podcast name because I feel when you started this, Jonathan, people thought it was cute. And it was not a real form of science communication. And so my message in background is you do what you want. Yeah. Maybe it will become something and maybe it will be followed and excellent. And maybe it wasn't a thing back then, but it is now. And I think that we can continue to make it successful. And I hope that whoever receives these scholarships throughout the years that I'll have a chance to meet and be able to encourage them to have a really good future in this this area. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I hope uh, we got to like get a picture tweeted at us or something. Maybe we'll have <laughs> the first recipient on the show. I don't know. Uh, it's it's a great honor. Thank you, Jody, for including the show as part of that. And as much drama as you always say, like don't don't forget to include the dash. That's how I am because when they wanted the arthropod like scholarship, I was like, it needs to have a dash. 
because people will think, right. They'll think it's weird (laughs) and they'll look it up and they'll find the podcast and we can tell that story. So it's called branding. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we've had a good year. Uh, We were trying to think of a cool topic to kind of wrap everything up, uh, put a bow on 2023 for us here. And we talk a lot about the media as part of our jobs. Each of us talks to the news uh, in various forms, radio, print media. Uh, Each of us has been on television, I believe, at least a a couple dozen times in the last calendar year or so. Uh, Maybe Mike's numbers went up this year. Uh, We've done a couple of special media-centric type episodes this year. Today, we're going to try and uh, expand our view. We're going to each do a couple, two or three news stories that are entomology-related and for me, part of the impetus behind this idea was what happened for with Mike or to Mike maybe this year uh, with the giant lacewing episode and the giant lacewing news bonanza. Mike, can you just give a little primer on what happened this summer? Sure. If you want the whole story, go check out our mini episode. It doesn't have an episode number because it's a mini pod, uh, but it's slot. It, it came out in March, and it's slotted between episodes one thirty two and one thirty three. So if you want to hear the whole shoot and shebang, go check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes as well. Right. Because we have those. (laughs) Uh, But if you didn't catch that and if you didn't see the story, I don't understand how these things happen. I found a giant lace wing in Arkansas and it was the first record of this species in the eastern U.S. in over 50 years. They still occur out west in the mountains, but they, they went extinct in the east. Uh, and I thought it was a neat little paper that like entomologists would think was cool. Like I'd get a pat on the back at ESA or something from people that saw it. Like, hey, you found that that extinct bug. That's cool. Or extirpated bug, I suppose. We put out a press release because, you know, sometimes with papers like this, like a neat discovery that the public might have interest in, like the university will put out a press release. And the, the media just picked it up and ran with it. Like over the course of a couple days, I was getting interviews from the New York Times, BBC. The story popped up in some German and Indian newspapers. It was a, the butt of a joke on Conan O'Brien. It just went viral within three or four days and then died down really quickly. But it was weird being really in the, in the news and in the media. Uh, I had folks that I hadn't heard from in 15 or 20 years reaching out, texting me or sending me messages like, hey, I saw your name in the news. What's up, Hollywood? Yeah. I think Uh, that what I liked the most about that was you were the news in that instance. I think that we all, we experience it the other way, where we're the people being interviewed about a weird topic. Uh, Jody will talk a little bit more about that maybe when it comes to bed bugs in Paris, but you were the news item in that situation. And I feel like that's just an entirely different spin than we're used to. Yeah. I woke up and saw like the headline for me was like, but it was like the man who was going to get milk and was found the bug. Like it was an interesting story (laughs) and you were the man. So you were the news, you were the insect news. It does feel like part of it, like part of the appeal is like, Hey, look at this weird entomologist. He picked up a bug and walked through the store with it. I mean, if you know any entomologist, that is not like an uncommon occurrence, but to the general public, you didn't even put it in your mouth, like right. Not even top five weirdest holding spots for it. <laughs> no, go ask Darwin about his bombardier beetle. Yeah, I think we talked about this in that mini episode. Just about th- there were so many kind of like buzzwords or buzz themes to it of like extinction, 
Jurassic. Like those, Jurassic. Those were the words that kept getting kind of bandied about. And yeah, there was this element of like, oh, scientists, you're so kooky. Uh, like you can't even go buy milk without accidentally discovering something. <laughs> How did it feel to be the news? I guess is the final question. Exhausting? Yeah. I ended up, uh, let me check. I did a do- more than a dozen interviews within probably a one week period about it. It consumed my life for that week. Like I just kept getting interview requests and talking to people and telling the same stories over and over, which I mean, by the last one I had down pretty pat. Um, it was fun. I'm glad it only lasted a couple days and then kind of petered out. It was a bit of a wild ride while it was happening. What would your lesson be? Like about the media or about like anything? What like what you take from? Yeah. I think the lesson from the story is if you know what you're looking for, you can make discoveries anywhere. Like there's just all kinds of stuff around us that if you know enough of the background details, like you can see new stuff all the time. I found this insect that was supposed to be extinct in the Eastern U S on the side of a Walmart. I eventually put it together because I knew enough. Hey, this thing's weird. Hey, it's not supposed to be there. Like I, but anybody can do that. I'm not special for having those facts in my brain. Because someone would have had to like, if you found it, how would you have known, like, as a regular person that you're going to look for something? Right. But I guess, like, anybody, those facts are out there. Like, you could go to Bug Gut and learn that. Anybody, even non-entomologists, can can learn this stuff. So what I learned from listening to your episode was that you should go through your stuff and pin it sooner. Yeah, that's true, too. And have good collection data. <laughs> And have good collection data. I think uh, there was a, actually a news story that I saw, Mike, that's kind of germane to your point that uh, I saw from the BBC. There was a new species of moth discovered in downtown London uh, just last week, or they just announced it last week. So, I mean, even in one of the world's most densely populated metropolises, there are new insects. And I think kind of what you're saying is like, there's science and wonder all around us. And, and don't be surprised when you bump into it, even when doing mundane tasks. For sure. That Yeah, that's exactly what I want people to take away from it. <laughs> uh, maybe for a discussion on maybe our, our usual experience, I'll turn to Jody. We just recently released the episode Bedbugs in Paris, uh, which I think talked about one of the bigger ticket items, bug news-wise, in 2023 about the, the quote-unquote bedbug invasion of Paris, which you've been interviewed about quite a bit. So can you talk about your experiences with that? and what it was like to be interviewed by Germans about it and and just how it feels to have the news come at you for your knowledge. I feel like I was interviewed by British people on a German newscast. Oh, never mind. I apologize. I would say the full story is episode 148. So it was two before this one, and you could hear all about it. It started with Paris Fashion Week, really, and basically... It's weird because I've been talking about bedbugs for a long time, but because bedbugs hit social media in this very, very big way and everyone jumped on the bedbug TikTok bandwagon, it just kind of spread. And now everyone was worried about getting bedbugs when they went to Paris. And then everyone else started admitting that they have bedbug problems too, is in countries and continents. And it's kind of spread from there. However, I don't think there's any more or less bed bug spread because there's always been bed bugs in the last 
at least 20 years anyway. So I would say it was very weird because it was not like Mike's where it was like this new discovery, something I actually did. It was just, I don't know how they found me. That's still kind of questionable. Like, I don't think when you Google, and I've been told if you Google professional entomologist, your name shows up. I don't think that's true. So maybe it just depends who you ask or what your search engine has. But I have no idea why they would interview a Canadian in the middle of the U.S. for a Paris, France bedbug. Why Brits that work for Germany are talking about France insects. And so they got a Canadian that lives in America to talk about it. Yeah, in Nebraska, like not even a big city (laughs) or anyone who does like research with them. It's just, I don't know. And then when I had said, I had asked, like, how did you, why did you ask me? Oh, we've seen some things that you've done. Vague. Very, very cryptic. Very vague. Uh, so whatever. I, I guess maybe we can segue from that into talking about, before we get into our news stories, uh, I think that part of this episode should be a little bit of a, a teachable moment for those who are maybe going to join the ranks of extension and entomology, science communication in the future about how it is to work with the media. We've all done it now. Uh, You've both just talked about two different experiences with it. Uh, I know that I've had my own set this summer with different things. So as entomologists, when weird bug things happen, you might get a call. It might not make sense like in Jody's case, or it might make total sense like in Mike's case, but you can bet that it will happen. Almost everybody that I've ever talked to in entomology has had somebody in the media contact them on some topic or another. And so I think it behooves us all to know how to handle that. Do you guys have any advice just off the cuff that you would offer the listeners about what to do in these situations and how to first react? Like what is your first thing that you're going to do when you get one of these media requests? How are we getting this request? Is it usually it's going to come through email, right? Maybe the phone. Well, I ask questions first. Like I do a little bit of research on that particular media Like, is this really a thing? Is this like, is this a newspaper? Is it written? Are they going to want to interview me? Are they going to show me on TV? Are they going to have my voice? Are they just going to quote something that maybe is wrong? And then I provide time. Like, I don't, like, if they're like, can we interview you right now? I will always say, you're going to have to give me a minute or set something up so I can have time to do that kind of research because I don't want to be interviewed cold and say something that's not right, not reflective of my institution that's correct factual i do a similar thing i've only declined one interview request and it was i forget what the lady's name is but she's a host on one of the fox news shows and it's one of the ones where they will frequently bring on like scientists and then berate them or twist what they're saying for like ratings and i said i'm not having any part of that and i declined them nicely like i didn't say the things that i actually thought i just said no Oftentimes, if it's a, I guess maybe not in contrast to Jody, but if it's a topic that I'm comfortable on, I'll often just take the interview right then and there. Uh, Because oftentimes these media folks are on a really tight deadline. They're like, we need an interview by the end of today. Like, oh, okay. And if you say no, like, then you don't do the interview. And they might go to some somebody else and that somebody may not have your institutional affiliation. And so you don't get those kind of bonus points, I guess. I think the biggest takeaway that I've learned, they don't teach you this anywhere, right? Is that especially with phone interviews, you have to think about every word that comes out of your mouth. Because if you say something just off the cuff, there is a good chance that is the thing that they are going to latch on to. 
and quote you on. And it may be factually correct, but you may sound like a doofus the way that you say it when it comes out in print. So like you need to think, how is this string of words in every word and everything that follows each word? Like, how does it sound? Is it what I want it to say? Is everything like correct? Do I mind if this sentence or these words wholly or in part is quoted because everything's on the record? I have an experience with that, with the periodical cicadas a couple of years ago. I think I've shared where I off the cuff, I didn't think we, we weren't rolling like the interview hadn't really begun. And I just sort of casually said, oh, yeah, it's all these teenage bugs having sex in your trees. And they used that like that was <laughs> people were coming to me in the bill and, and at work and being like, I, I saw you in the on the news. You said all this about teenage. I was like, oh, my gosh, they used that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you do have to be conscientious. It's all on the record. Like once the moment they start talking to you, basically. And so you don't want to embarrass what institution you work for. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You want to be correct. Uh, you should trust yourself and have the courage of your convictions. You know what you're talking about typically. And if you buy yourself an hour to do some research, it's good to sort of jot down. I usually create a, just a small piece of paper with four sentences. Like these are the four things that I absolutely have to convey in this interview. And they're bullet points because then they're short and sweet. Uh, you have to be careful with kind of long-winded explanations because they'll dice that up and you could lose some nuance and some context when they do the dicing. And that's not me trying to like knock media people. I was talking with one of them that I've been interviewed by, I think three or four times this year. And they basically, I mean, they get like 30 seconds to present whatever topic they've been assigned because there's got to be like the intro piece and the outro piece and the meat is very thin in the middle. And so if you talk for five minutes about all of the ins and outs of Asian longhorn ticks, they're going to have to find sentences to chop out of there. And if you don't take a breath between them, uh, it can sound weird and odd. So figure out stopping points, figure out the main theses that you want to kind of communicate and don't give a long winded response. Like I'm doing right now. You want it to be sort of punchy, uh, good sound bites or the other. I learned about that when I worked in Omaha, uh, Jody's colleague, John Fesh is a, a media person of some renown. He's been on lots of TV segments and he taught me a lot about this. Cause yeah, it's not part of our, our graduate experience. I don't think, uh, did any, did either of you get media training? Oh. No, we took a class as undergrads. I thought Mike with Tom Turpin, where it was sort of entomology in the media. It was only like a two credit course. Were you not in there? I might vaguely remember that, but I don't think we talked about anything like, like this per se. He taught Did us how he? to do radio and it was, it was, Maybe it was a I bit dated. I mean, it was like in 2006 or seven. I mean, so, radio is not dated. I've done a number of radio interviews, Yeah, but I think that the, the packaging would need some <laughs> new shellac on it. If we were going to do that class, we've, we've had some grad students here sort of indicate they would like something like that. Uh, these quote unquote soft skills, they would appreciate some training on. So they have that under their belt when they go out into the world, but. I don't know that uh, it's not easy. Like people sort of always want to know how, you, if it's effortless, like if you just show up and talk about something that, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of prep and effort that goes in before and after. Don't you guys? I think so. And then I've had a couple bad experiences. So I am very wary about certain things. I mean, I've been out with some young reporters and just been yelled at by some creepy guy in the, the woods. 
Right. Yeah. Bad experiences. I didn't feel safe for the reporters. I didn't feel all that safe myself. I'm a runner. I could run away. And then I've <laughs> also been interviewed for a topic, gave that interview, and then later on found out the interview wasn't even about that. Like they played a whole different story using some of my words and sound bites, something completely different. And I ended up writing them and saying, I will never give you another interview again like i'm very disappointed in your reporting i think that's fair yeah uh, lose my number the media world can also be tricky because like i know that i've put out fact sheets and stuff and then later on found out that the fact sheet was turned into what was sort of presented as a, a media interaction where like they quote me as my words are the fact sheet and then like larson says blah, blah, blah about Southern Pine Beetle. And it's like, well, I do say that, but I didn't say it to you. And this is kind of weird. Like content drives the world and content is being generated in ways that it wasn't previously made. I think that media for scientists going forward is a lot harder than it was even 10, 20, 30 years ago, just because of the way that people are are generating clicks and generating all of this this new stuff. Maybe that's an old man shouting from his lawn moment for me, though. No, because I I mean, I agree with Mike. You want to be the one doing the, like, I want it to come from me. I want it to come from you and all. If it's not going to be like, if when Jonathan was here, it was like, hey, they're calling me. That's your territory. Do you want it? Do you want it? If not, should I take it? Because we don't want it to go to another university or a college or someone who has no idea what they're talking about. Because the message either way should be correct. And most of the time it's, hey, don't panic. Here are the facts, I would say to summarize. So yeah, I do want it to come to me, but I want it to be done right. And I want to be proud of what I do because it's already embarrassing seeing yourself on the news or having people take pictures or selfies with you in the background on their TV. So you want to make sure that the message is right and that that you're proud of it because it never goes away. It's always on the internet forever. Pretty much, pretty much. But I would also say it's, it is a great opportunity. Some of the stuff that Jody was just saying, like it, it's an opportunity to raise your profile, to raise your department's profile, to raise your office's profile. If you're in an extension office, it can make you a trusted voice in the community. When people know that I've seen you, I've, I had it happen at a, a cattleman's meeting a couple months ago. I was getting ready to go up and start talking. And this guy, he was like already on my side. He already believed what I was going to say. Cause he's seen me on the news, quote unquote, you're you're sort of like a known quantity because of this. And it can be very helpful. And you can breed really profitable relationships with media members that you can use going forward for the future. So I think people should take the opportunity if they feel comfortable. Also, if it makes you if your skin crawls off your body entirely with the idea of being on the on the news or in the newspaper, trust that instinct, like maybe you shouldn't do it. <laughs> Is that fair to say? You could also it depends. If you're an extension, you may not have a choice. And so I think in that case, prepping like that will help. And also some of that may just be public speaking issues as well. Like the more talks you give in front of people, the more that often goes away. Like I remember as an undergrad, I was nervous to do public speaking. And at this point, give me a stage of 3000 people and it's fine because it's just I'm desensitized to it at this point. So If you're in a similar situation, just try speaking in public more. Give more talks. Interviews will get easier. And you can do some training wheels type stuff like getting on podcasts with friendly people that aren't out to get you. We've had multiple students on this show that present their work trying to make sure that we give an arena where they can feel comfortable rather than 
you know, they're kind of on the spot and they've got 30 seconds to boil five years of work down to 20 seconds or whatever. Give us your elevator pitch. Even less than (laughs) elevator, like jumping off the elevator pitch. So I hope that people will take a chance on doing media. It, It can be a lot of fun. Bugs have been in the news a lot this year, so there's always a lot of opportunity to do this. We've talked about two of the bigger bug stories already. Now we're going to kind of do the news roundup, and we're going to go around the horn. Uh, We'll start with Mike, and we've each picked some weird, intriguing, fascinating, terrifying, different kinds of insect news stories, or I guess maybe squirmy news stories, because I know some of us have got things that don't have segmentation, legs, or uh, exoskeletons. So maybe just all the things that get tossed at entomologists, and we'll start with Mike. Sure. So the first one that I picked... I was at, I actually did a couple interviews about this back in March. Oh, March 21st. Some folks reached out to me about worm rain in China. And it was this viral TikTok thing that had claimed that all of these worms had rained down from the sky in China and residents were asked to carry umbrellas into fine shelter. And On its face, maybe there's some truth to that. Like, we've all heard, like, the crazy stories of fish rain or frog rain. Like, you get a big storm and some weird aquatic animals get sucked up and they get deposited miles inland, right? Like, that that is a phenomena that happens. The problem is, when you look at the photograph and the videos that accompany this story, it just is not worms. So remember, this is March when this is happening. It's when trees are blooming, flowers, spring flowers are blooming. Um, you know, China is in the temperate northern regions like us, so it's where they're about the same kind of things are happening at the same time. And when you look at it, all these worms that are covering these cars and these sidewalks, they're catkins. They're birch, I think, catkins. So catkins are these long, you know, couple inch long, round uh, flowering or parts of flowers that occur on certain trees, oaks and birches and other things like that, deciduous trees. And after they kind of bloom and do their release their pollen and do their flower thing, they fall off. So all these cars are covered in plant bits. And what probably happened is a big storm came through and blew them all down. But it was just this viral TikTok claiming worms had fallen from the sky, took these photo and videos totally out of context. And people are wondering, like, where did these worms come from? And well, they're not worms. They're just plant bits. Right. I did look. So I looked at Google Trends. Uh, and if you look up, did worms rain in China, there is a big spike uh, in March of 2023, but there are spikes of, you know, 50, it, that one was up to like 100 lookups or whatever interest over time, it goes to 100. I actually don't know. How we Google don't know what the axes are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what how Google time. Trends work. Uh, <laughs> but if you look like every year and a couple times a year, there's spikes up to like 50, 75. It seems like this viral story is just kind of percolating at low levels all the time, or at least has been for the last five years. I don't quite understand it because I've never encountered it before. Apparently, people in Ohio are very interested in it. That has the highest lookup of any place in the U.S. and in the world, I think. Wow. Can um, I tell you that I did get a question about, well, the answer was catkins, or as you would say, those are plant bits. Yeah, but the bits. question was, is this caterpillar harmful to my plant? And they it sent a picture. A and I was like, that is not an insect that is 
part of a plant. Yep. And that was the end because I didn't want to make any judgments. And, right. And like they didn't know. That's fine. But go out and touch it and see if it's alive. Like that's, is it squishy? Does it look like anything? Look up, look around. Like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain to people to be more observant. If they're sending me a picture, you're there with it. Give me more information. Look with a stick. Does it have legs? Yeah. I mean, maybe that's I, why it was wormy, but then where are they coming from? Your neighbor's tree? Yeah, it's not going to damage your plant. Yeah, plant. and in this case, I don't even know. Like, I assume it's just somebody found this video and posted it to TikTok. Like, it may not even occurred or yeah. been taken in March of this year. I assume it was because it's about the right time for that phenomenon to happen. But uh, who knows? It's the internet and it went viral. Well, that's the weird part. I think that... Like my my take on this is even a little more nefarious. Like if this is a percolating thing in the background that people ask questions about and you find a, a video that's not translated from China of things that look like worms and you can just take it because it's from the news and then you can make a TikTok video about it and say, oh, look at all these worms in China. Like people are stealing internet points off of this kind of stuff all the time. They're trying to to weaponize our fear and fascination with buggy type things, I feel like. and so. I don't know. I feel like there's lots of weird angles at play with that kind of stuff. Yep. Never trust TikTok. That that that's my to. that's my old man yelling at the crowd. <laughs> <moment. laughs> they changed what was cool. <laughs> now it's not cool. <laughs> It'll happen to you, all of you. <laughs> Jonathan, uh, do you want to go next? No, no, it's your turn. Oh, I get to go. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna pick the cricket crisis. Ooh, well named. Yeah. So these are Mormon crickets. These are not sprigets. So I've heard of sprigets and those are spider crickets, which is not even a thing, but those are camel crickets. This, these are Mormon crickets. And this was an invasion in Nevada. So a lot of the news were out of Elko, Nevada. So if you want to look that up, like you can just look up Mormon crickets, I don't know, swarm or whatever. There's millions of them. It's mostly the same people talking, the same area. So there's a lot of articles out there, but I will talk about these Mormon crickets. So they're two to three inches long and they were reddish colored. And they also would call them blood red crickets because of their color. They have really long hind legs. They jump and they crawl and they crawl up walls and they'll like be on like above you and then let go and fall down on people. So they don't fly, <laughs> but they're like just... There's such an invasion and violation of people's space. And honestly, like I saw videos and I was like, yeah, I'm glad that's not me. I like bugs, but that is not. Not your jam. It's nobody's jam. I don't think there's anyone that would be like, this is the most amazing thing. So females, like most other orthopterans, have a really long ovipositor. So these videos um, started showing up on social media platforms in June of these outbreaks of these Mormon crickets taking over the homes, businesses, the hospital even. They blanket the roads with their bodies and they walk up all over everything, like by the masses, thousands of them. They pop when you step on them or drive over them. There's all the bodies make the road like an oil slick, all the bodies, so it makes it slippery. The city gets called and trucks had to bulldoze them off or like plow them out of the way. Nice. And there were like street signs that were warning drivers slow down um, because of the, the cricket bodies. 
So they have thousands, tens of thousands of eggs buried in the soil. This is very similar to our locust episodes. If you ever want to know more about those, we've had a couple episodes about those, but they're buried in the soil and they hatch usually late May, early June. And then these high populations cause them to go in this swarm phase. And so they may change their behavior, their morphology, their colors. So this year it was bad in Nevada, Idaho, and Southeast Oregon. And they hatched earlier than normal, so they reached maturity earlier. But this can also historically happen in Utah and Montana. And the poor entomologist that is there in Nevada, his name is not obsessed with him, but I was very curious about him, Jeff Knight. He's the Nevada State Entomologist with the Nevada Department of Agriculture. So a lot of he was on all of the things. I don't know if it was the same interview, but he was just like, he's this older, mature guy who's just very like, that's like, this is kind of normal. This is how it is. So there is an outbreak about every 10 years. And that outbreak huh. lasts about four to six years. And then it disappears and they go dormant. They swarmed in Nevada from 1999 to 2007. And then they were gone. Then they came back. And it's been since about 2019 that they've seen a couple. But this year, 2023, was the worst since that. And usually when this happens, it lasts a few weeks. So these migrating Mormon crickets, they can move up to a mile per day. And what they do is just eat everything, including each other. Uh, And they sound like rain when they're falling and popcorn when they're getting squished. (laughs) that <laughs> I wanted to quote some of the things I saw Jeff Knight talking about. He was talking about how there's like, there's not really an explanation about it, but I'm pretty sure since after we, you know, did the locust thing, it has to do with drought and temperature and climate, all that stuff. But he reminds people that it's nothing out of the ordinary. So he's just like, yeah, this happens. But what got me was, there's a quote that said, I was hoping to not have another cycle before I retired. Over my 37 years as an entomologist, this was about the fourth cycle I've been through. I just felt for him. I had a lot of empathy for him. Like, oh gosh, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's like every year. And like, for me, like the oak itch mites or something, I don't know what it would be for you guys, but like, is this a bad year for ticks or are there going to be mosquitoes this year? You know, as an entomologist, like, yep, yep. (laughs) He sounds like a lethal weapon character. (laughs) Yeah. Getting too old for this. Uh, I I'd seen that as well. I particularly like when they were called blood crickets. Like that's a, I feel like a really compelling way to get people to click on your articles, talk about swarms of blood crickets crawling through the desert. So Mormon crickets are actually Katie dids. Mike got all excited. <laughs> what do you want me to say about Katie dids? They're weird flightless Katie dids that live out West that we don't have here in the East. Do you know why they're called Mormon crickets? Because of the Mormon settlers, they outbroke and destroyed their, all their crops. Uh, when they moved out west to the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, and it was like this miracle of the gulls. It's like this 1848 event. So like after the Mormon settlers settled in Utah, they encountered these Mormon crickets and these seagulls were thought to have miraculously saved the crops by eating thousands of these insects. So it was a massive problem, but the gulls didn't necessarily save the crops and the crickets were part of the massive problem, but there was also drought and frost and other things too. Predators that eat these Mormon crickets are like birds, coyotes, rodents, and horsehair worms was a, um, oh, fun. a predator too. So that was pretty cool. Some of the news had homeowners sweeping mass amounts of the crickets off their 
property. They had leaf blowers. They had vacuums. They were putting them in trash cans, power washing their structures. And there's also like these mechanical like barriers of of cricket fences that they're not able to climb. Uh, Most of the residents just were trying to wait until they went away. And I don't know. There's never news when they go away. There's just news when they're there. Yeah, that was very interesting to see all the news. And I couldn't actually look away because it looked like terrible. Right. It's it's I mean it's a primal thing, right? Like insect swarms are always going to to sell for a news station for anybody covering that. Uh when you had said that yesterday about that was one of the things you wanted to cover, I just sort of did a quick search on Google to see what other insect swarms had been in the media this year. There was a big one in northwest Arkansas. Wisconsin was apparently under siege by dragonflies. And New York City experienced huge swarms of aphids when the Canadian smoke that was all all of it was like first it was the smoke now it's the bugs you know like all of this like plague sort of discussion people were saying there were gnats taking over New York City but it was really winged aphids Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know you couldn't breathe and now there were bugs so like let's everybody be afraid of the apocalypse okay but time out Wisconsin was being invaded by dragonflies was it like the migratory green darners migrating if I remember correctly but what's wrong with that? Were they I like, mean, was it like mayfly bad? Uh, let me find out. Yeah, give me a dragonfly. Invasion. Yeah, I would, I would kind of love that. I mean, they're not Dragon... getting into the house, like walking up my body and getting squished all over, are they? Big thickets and swarms of them. Dragonfly explosion in southeast Wisconsin. A dragonfly expert explains why there's so many. Probably noticing them more now. There's tons and tons in the yards. If you live by the lake shore, you're going to see more of them. Oh my gosh, there's... Very pervasive warrior ad blocking my view of this. Last year's dragonfly population was a 17-year peak. Could explain why we're seeing so many more. I don't see a name for it. Yeah, I was like, but who is the dragonfly expert? Jamie Sheasel is the ecological education manager at the Mequon Nature Preserve. He's also on the board of directors for the Wisconsin Dragonfly Society. Oh, were they hurting anybody? No, I mean, they're dragonflies. They're the devil's darning needle. Maybe that's why people were afraid. Mm -hmm. But swarms, I think that's always going to sell. That's always going to be big money. If you can get video footage of lots of bugs all over one spot, right? I mean, even you said you couldn't look away because it's kind of horrifying. Well, I hate orthopterans. You do famously hate orthopterans. Oh, I didn't mean to say hate. I just like them strongly. You can hate things, can't you? Uh, No, because I don't usually hate. Well, I do hate chiggers. That's fair. I do hate having chiggers. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Carry on. Keep Let's trying go. to couch these things. All right. Is it my turn? Like it is your turn. Mine was boring compared to your first two, but <laughs> that's why I uh, try to let you go first. Well, no, it's good. It's fine. We'll get the boring one out of the way here, and then we'll do some <laughs> more exciting ones. Uh, mine were just there's there were a couple of invasive species near and dear to my heart that were there were lots of media interviews about for me and a lot of other colleagues. One is the box tree moth, which is on the move in multiple states. Uh, in multiple counties in these different states. It is a caterpillar pest of box tree or boxwoods. And it is, it constructs like a little webby nest in there. And they come out and they feed on the green tissue of the leaves of the boxwood plants. And when they do that, they leave this kind of curly cue midrib that'll dry up. And uh, the webbing is all mixed in there as well. It's not as, as big as like a tent caterpillar nest, if you're imagining that. But there is a, a layer of webbing of silk in there mixed in with these curly Q midribs. 
and the plant will start to take on kind of a brown orange coloration and if they run out of leaves to feed on they'll move to the trunk or the stem down below and they'll girdle it and they'll kill it uh, the defoliation is also not good over successive generations i know mike you've recently been writing about this as well do you remember we were in half price books when we were visiting you in lexington and i got the usda alert that they had been discovered in canada uh-huh I well, just that that's my that's one of my prime memories of box tree moth. Um, <laughs> they had been shipped out of Canada, right? Was it that they'd been shipped out or that they'd been found? I think that because when you were here, that was twenty one, and that was okay. the year that they they accidentally shipped them out of Canada in the multiple U.S. states. Okay, and in some okay. of those states, they seem to have gotten them under control. Like South Carolina and Connecticut were on the original list, and I don't see them on any of the verbiage on USDA website now. But they have gotten out in Michigan, which was one of the first states from that, that 2021 problem. And now they're in Western New York and Ohio as well. I guess I find it fascinating. I've done maybe like almost a dozen interviews about box tree moth, which to me is kind of a boring invasive. I don't like box <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, I agree. Of, of all the things that we're going to worry about, because I've had three meetings about box tree moth in the last four weeks. I wrote a fact sheet about it back in 2020 early on, got asked to be on a, another publication about it because of that fact sheet. But I just, I have a hard time caring. They they just feed on boxwoods and there's no native boxwoods in North America. They don't right. eat anything but an ornamental that we plant. And like, who cares? Like we care because growing bo boxwoods are extremely resilient in urban environments. And so it's a huge industry because they're planted everywhere but like i i don't care so i i have similar similar sympathies mike like they're they're not native themselves so you know what are we really talking about here but i did i was doing some spelunking they're worth 140 million dollars to the american nursery industry which i was like that's that is a lot of money they're already under siege by boxwood blight so there's mm -hmm. this is like another whammy kind of on them and they are very pervasive. I mean, you can any you throw a rock in any parking lot in America, you're going to hit a boxwood. They're the the easiest to plant shrub. They're easy to shape. They require almost no post installation care. The only thing that used to kill them was basically bad winters. Winter kill is a thing with them. There are some sort of native pests, boxwood psyllid, boxwood leaf miner that they get. Neither of them are going to wipe the plant out. They can affect the aesthetics. But this one, yeah, uh, I've seen pictures from Europe where it was an invasive species first. And like, they're just all dead. Like all the boxwoods are dead. It looks really gnarly and there's a lot of removal. The The movement that's happened has involved Dayton, Ohio, uh, Hamilton and Claremont counties in Ohio. And then finally Warren and Butler counties in Ohio. Uh, the Hamilton County, that's around Cincinnati. So there's a big metropolitan area involved. Michigan now has 12 counties quarantined as of 2023 and it includes the counties that have detroit ann arbor flint and uh, port huron uh, western new york niagara east aurora erie orleans and genesee counties i think are the the main ones but then monroe wayne and cayuga and jefferson counties were also listed as being at least sampled for it so more and more discoveries this is what the pattern that we see with invasive species right and there's all these nursery growers that are kind of concerned about if they can move their product um, and where they can sell it at. 
and it could have a, a big impact on your local nursery industry. What were you going to say, Mike? I do think it's interesting. You mentioned all these things and like it's it's often popping up in urban environments first. And it, it, it could be an interesting study for somebody, somebody who's not me, uh, that knows hmm. better about these things. But, you know, over in Europe, they've got two native box species that occur in forests. Part of the reason this thing spread so quickly in Europe is like it got into nursery stock and then got into native environments and spread in native environments and could go that way. But here, since it's only an ornamental, I'd be curious to see like if you could map the density of boxwood. I bet it would be highest in urban areas, less in suburban areas, and almost non-existent in rural areas. So you've kind of got this inverse where like in a lot of invasive species, you get them in rural areas like Asian longhorn beetle because that's where the hosts are. And they don't really invade, I guess Asian longhorn beetle is a bad example because they invade urban trees. But some of these things won't invade urban spaces because you don't have hosts. But this is the inverse where you've got a lot of hosts in these urban islands, less hosts the further out you go. And then these kind of disconnected islands of hosts where you, you have to have human movement between urban spaces because the boxwood moths probably aren't going to make it themselves. They'll be accidentally shipped. People will buy, package up a boxwood and sell it. I think that's what people are worried about. Like if this gets into Tennessee, Tennessee feeds Kentucky and Indiana sure. and other states, they could ship it north. It's very weird. Like the nurseries, they work the opposite of what I would expect. Southern stock is always being sent north to be planted in the, the states to the north. And so if it got to Florida, it would get shipped to Georgia. If it gets to Tennessee, it would get shipped to here. Uh, I, I think that there is an interesting study to be done there. I actually would predict that there might be like a suburban ring around. Oh, you think? Yeah, like the suburbs are pretty thick with boxwoods. Like if I walk around my suburb that I live in, there's two plants I'm guaranteed to find in every yard, a holly shrub and boxwood shrubs. Like okay. every single house has them. And downtown, yeah, you would still find some, but... I would. I think it would might maybe look like Saturn's rings. Like there'd be some spots in the middle, but then this like oh, ring of suburban. I don't know. I'm just we're just hypothesizing here, but somebody needs to look into it. Maybe maybe they'll talk to us about it in the future. I had never even heard of a box tree moth until right now. There you go. Happy. But to now help. when you were like, it's not like a box tree. It's a box wood, and I've heard of a lot of calls of the winter damage. Mm -hmm. the same thing. And so then I'm like, oh, now I know what you're talking about. Which shrub? I don't have one of those. I've seen so, a lot of dead ones. So we call them boxwood here because okay. that's that's an American, North American thing. They're called box trees over in Europe because like the native species that are out in the wild get like small tree sized. Like they get more, they're more upright. They got bigger trunks. Like what we see here is what happens to a box tree when you keep it small and pruned into it into a shrub. Uh, but they get they can get much much larger, and so over there they're called box trees. And since they got them first, box tree moth. They get to name it. The caterpillars pretty, and I think the moth's kind of cool looking. Yeah, the moth is cool looking. Kind of a cool. Is it a crambid? Am I yeah, it's a crambid. Yeah. Uh, they got cool eggs. They do have cool eggs. The caterpillar looks like Mountain Dew or Mellow Yellow. It's kind of that weird greenish yellow black <laughs> mixture color. Uh, that's one invasive species that I've had to talk a lot about this year. The other one is spotted lanternfly, which has joined in a few new states, Tennessee, Illinois, Kentucky, and Iowa, all have been added to the map. I would call that foreshadowing. It feels like we've 
gone over the event horizon with spotted lanternfly when you've jumped from basically Ohio with sort of Indiana and you're all the way out to Iowa and you filled in three other states nearby, it feels like we've hit a, a speed part of the of the process where things are going to get worse faster, unfortunately. Very interesting for me looking at the new spots uh, in Tennessee. It's basically in Nashville, Illinois. It was in Chicago in Iowa. It was in Des Moines. So all large metropolitan centers in their respective states. Ours was found in Sparta, Kentucky. Either of you heard of Sparta, Kentucky? Nope. nope. I hope that they make a lot of jokes, uh, 300 jokes, kicking people in holes saying this is Sparta. <laughs> but it's a small town across the river from the first infestation in Indiana, which was in Switzerland County, Indiana. So we think this might have actually been natural spread. They may have mm. actually just flown across the river. Uh, it's been a couple of years since that find in Indiana, and they were only four miles from the state line anyway. And that kind of jives with the natural spread of spotted lanternfly. So it's possible. It's also possible somebody drove over there to go gambling and then came home to Sparta and accidentally <laughs> brought it home with them. It's uh, other news items that I've heard about lanternfly this year because I've had to do so much research about it. Uh, I saw out of Penn State that it's not as hard on hardwoods as we previously thought. Uh, is that Julie Urban's work? That is Julie Urban's work. Spotted lanternfly is a weird one because like we've had EAB and box tree moth, you have a very specific set of plants that you're worried about. Spotted lanternfly has over 70 different hosts, 100 hosts almost that it'll feed on, but it doesn't seem like it's lethal for hardly any of them, which makes it kind of a unique invasive species. Yeah. So we we do find that it will feed heavily on Alanthus, on Tree of Heaven, and it will kill them, right. which is actually good because it's right. <laughs> a, a terrible invasive on its own. It's biocontrol. Yeah. Uh, the other thing it is hard on is grapes, which is not great in Pennsylvania because we have a decently sized wine industry here. Uh, so that's not great. The other concern that we had was Spotted lanternflies feed on a lot of different deciduous trees. They they really like some oaks and maples, sycamores, I think, and they really Willow, like some black of these, walnut. Yeah, yeah black roses. walnut's a big one. Yeah, and we were worried that successive feeding over multiple years would do the same thing on them as it does on tree heaven and, and kill them. Uh, what we're finding now is that po the population dynamics kind of don't allow for that. So once the initial kind of wave front a spotted lanternfly comes through and you kind of die back to background levels you get hot spots of spotted lanternflies in the landscape they will feed heavily one year but then they might move off and feed heavily in a different area the next year so you might have one maybe two years of heavy feeding and then a year or two three without and so that gives these deciduous trees time to recuperate after a year of heavy feeding. And so you get spotty infestations across the landscape, but they can generally recover. And so it doesn't look like, again, once kind of the initial invasion front moves through, that they'll be killing trees, at least based on information we have now. Now, right. you know, everything we saw out of Pittsburgh this year, it's the first year that they're really bad there. And so that's kind of that, that wave front cresting in Pittsburgh this year. Everybody's like, ah, it's not that bad. Have you seen the city? Like they're right. everywhere. Right. But give it a couple of years and they'll probably die back. Yeah. The way that we've been trying to talk to people about it here since we found it in Kentucky is, you know, you're going to hear a lot of things. You'll see a lot of old reports. 
there's a lot of older news reports that you'll see about where it talks about how bad it is for agriculture. I've tried to temper that and always point out it's not feeding on corn. It's not feeding on soybeans. We have a vineyard industry here as well. And I'm going to talk to them in January at the fruit and vegetable conference about it. But like, there's a lot of specialized information that needs to come Mm -hmm. out. And it's really going to be more of an annoyance. Like everyday people are just going to be annoyed. It'll be like the Mormon cricket situation. It'll just be tons and tons of bugs touching you when you don't want them to. But your street trees will probably survive and probably be fine. And putting honeydew on your car, which is not great. Yes. They do feed on apples and other fruit trees. Yes. Which is a big problem here since that's a huge industry in Pennsylvania. But Probably I've heard be less that, of an issue else, elsewhere. I've heard that it's also, I mean, just like you said, for trees, like it's not as bad for the apple and other fruit trees as it is for grapes. Like there's sure. some nuance there. So there is it. The problem is because it's at least for the year that it's sucking on your trees, it reduces crop yield because right. they have less energy to put into apples. Right. They're trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the last thing I'll just throw out there that I, I encountered with spotted lanternfly over the last couple of months is, how do you say Carnegie, Mike? Carnegie. Carnegie, thank you. Carnegie Mellon University, they put out this really cool press release, I, I, a computer group there. They've produced something they're calling Tartan Pest AI. It is a, a mobile egg squishing uh, device. It has like four by four tires on it. It looks like it's about six feet long and six feet wide. And it's got this arm with a bristle at the tip. And they used uh, deep learning training to teach it what spotted lanternfly eggs are. They said in the video that they used, it sounded like egg pictures from Bug Guide. They said they got it from Iowa State. So I presume they got it from Bug Guide. Uh, And they taught it what spotted lanternfly eggs are. And they released it into the field and it drives around and it drives up and it it squishes all the eggs to death with its bristle. And they're putting it out in like September and October when the eggs are, are pretty prominent when egg laying is happening. I thought it was interesting. It's going to, I have no doubt when I go to the fruit and vegetable conference, I will get a question about it. Like some farmer will have read about this and okay. want to know if we're going to deploy it in Kentucky. But I think spotted lanternfly, it inspires a lot of media interest with all these different things. There's this huge campaign in the Eastern US. It's called, if you see it, stomp it. What is your opinion about that? Oh boy, my opinion. In Kentucky, we've tried to temper that a bit because we didn't have it and we were afraid people would squish it and kill it and not know what they had necessarily done. And they would think we already knew about it and not tell us. So Mm -hmm. we were saying, see it, report it, squish it. Uh, I think that nomenclature is also out there in other places. They see it, squish it, report it. You see some variations on it. Uh, I feel a little uncomfortable just like sending legions of people out telling them to squish bugs willy-nilly because i've received dozens of images in the last year of box elder bugs leopard moths harlequin bugs everything under the sun that's got spots or red or weird colors that people thought was spotted lanternfly and i appreciate them reporting it to us and, and being concerned but in an alternative universe they just squished whatever they saw and didn't bother to figure out if it really was or not. So there could be some some by-kill, mm-hmm. unintended consequences. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think there's nuance to it. I think in a place like New York or Pittsburgh, where you do have like the invasion front, yes. and it is obvious where the spotted lanternflies are. In that case, I think it might be okay, if only because 
not to like actually control the bugs, right? Right. No, no level of stomping is going to do that, but people are angry and upset and it is an outlet and they're an invasive species that shouldn't be here. So like if you've got people stomping stomponded lanternflies for like psychological necessity <laughs> is like, <laughs> a, 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 you know, it's the pressure valve uh, release. And I, uh, I agree that with I that. I think might be okay. Yeah. I And I was fine when I saw it coming out of Philadelphia, Trenton, New York City, like all these places that are, they know what it is. There's an SNL skit about spotted lanternfly. Like people in those areas, they know what they're looking at. Then the news in Cincinnati and Louisville mm-hmm. and Indianapolis, like these places that don't have it, there's this cool new, you know, see it, squish it kind of thing. Uh, it's a fun thing to report on. And so th- that was every SLF interview for the last two years I've done is tell them how to squish it, tell them why they should squish it, squish it, squish it, squish it. And so I feel like my area shouldn't be squishing, but yes, over there should be squishing. I had one last thought on the robot. So <laughs> this feels like, I don't want to be too negative, but this feels like an area where some basic background research would have really saved time and effort. Uh-huh. Because you said this thing has an arm that's like six feet high, right? Mm-hmm. we've done studies. Kelly Hoover here at Penn State did a study looking at the average distribution of spotted lanternfly egg masses on Tree of Heaven. And there, it's a bell-shaped curve. And that bell-shaped curve peaks at 9 to 12 meters off the ground. Right. So like 95% of your egg masses are above six feet. If you watch the video that they produced, it's very clear that it's about the robot. It's a, a like they a wanted class. to build a robot. It's a class of of students that were like, we built this robot, we trained okay. it, we can, we are good at computer stuff. The bug part of it, yes, like, and they they the agriculture part, they don't fully seem to grok either. I think it starts by saying like, this is a huge pest for farmers. It's a huge pest for agriculture farmers who grow hardwood trees. And I was like, ah, <laughs> that's not really. Yeah. Okay. But, if it's a student project, I have. When you said Carnegie Mellon, I was like, oh, this is like two researchers or a team well, of researchers. In, doing it. in the video, there are professors, but they're also like four students that, that each talk about it. So I, I can't tell if they're I can't tell what the, the dynamic is there. Hmm. But there's a lot of that in the air right now. People talking about maybe we'll talk about AI more in the future, but AI sticky cards, counting bugs and telling you what's out there. Uh, lasers on tractors that tell you when insects are flying and identifying them. And this is part of it. Like people trying to figure out mechanical control means using AI, I think is part of the future as well. And spotted lanternfly is maybe one of the ones that they're going to try it on. So you'll hear about it in the news. (laughs) Mike, what else have we heard about in the news of bugs? I'm going to go off with another invasive species and I am going to talk about yellow-legged hornets. Have either of you heard or talked about yellow-legged hornets at all? Didn't we talk about it? Briefly. We we did a brief thing. I primed our extension agents. I said, everybody's trying to build build this up into murder hornets number two. Mm -hmm. So be prepared. And luckily that that dam never quite burst. No. And so there has been some updates since we did mention that on, I guess, whatever episode that was. If you didn't catch the the past discussion of it, yellow-legged hornets are... The species of Vespa, so they're related to European hornets and northern giant hornets, or the murder hornets, uh, that are found in, they're native to Southeast Asia and are invasive in Europe. They were introduced into France in the early 2010s, 
um, and have spread through France, through a lot of Europe. And I, honestly, I've been kind of waiting for them to pop up in North America because <laughs> they're invasive in Europe. We know that they can be moved. We know other hornets like northern giant hornets can be moved. And it turned up in Georgia this year. The first, they found a worker in August of 2023 in Georgia. And from that point on, the Georgia Department of Ag was on the hunt. And the last time we talked, they'd only found the worker. Well, now they found and exterminated three nests. That's all they found. So we don't know how widespread they are, but they did get the nests before the queens kind of left to go over winter and hibernate. So if that's all there was, they may have been able to snuff out that infestation or that kind of toehold that they had in North America. I don't want to say they're not as bad as northern giant hornets, but they're smaller in size. They're smaller than European hornets even. They're about the size of a bald-faced hornet, so they're not these giant things. I think that's part of the reason they didn't take off quite so hard in the media. <laughs> There's actually a lot of misinformation even on things like the USDA website. So there was a study out of Europe that showed that over the course of a year, there could be up to 6,000 workers produced by a nest. Okay. Whoever made the USDA fact sheet misread that paper and said that a nest can have 6,000 workers at a time. And so that's bigger than like a lot of yellow jacket nests. That is an enormous number of workers. Uh, it turns out at maturity, they have around 400 workers. That 6,000 number is like over the course of a year and some of these things die off. I contacted the USDA and they to be like, hey, this is wrong. Y'all misread it. And they never, never fixed it. I see um, it on the Georgia one as well. Yep. And it's on the the University of Florida one too. Uh, I actually reached out to all of them and nobody got back to me, which is a little <laughs> bit frustrating. The one, so the one problem that yellow-legged hornets could have, the biggest problem would be on honeybees. Uh, so they're another species that bee hawks, they'll get, they like to eat pollinators. And so if they locate a honeybee nest, they will just sit outside that honeybee nest and eat the workers until the nest is dead. In France, there was a study that showed that 30% of honeybee hives, commercial honeybee hives were impacted and up to 5% of them were killed outright, which is not great when we're dealing with things like colony collapse disorder and all these other mites and problems that honeybees have. Then again, honeybees are an invasive species when they're outside of you know, controlled conditions and they're an ag species when they are raised for honey in pollination. So I have opinions on whether that's a, a problem or not. Uh, there is some research that shows yellow-legged hornets will impact native pollinators. So they'll also be hawk on flowers. They'll get like a Queen Anne's lace or a goldenrod or some of these other fall flowers where you get lots of pollinators coming in and they'll just fly above it and just take out whatever bees are coming in. Um, and they can actually impact pollination rates at those wow. flowers. So they could be a problem there. But yeah, it seems like if those three nests were the only three nests that are out there, maybe we took care of them. I'm sure the Georgia Department of Agriculture is going to put up you know, more surveys next year and start looking for these things, try to eliminate any other nests that they have, because we don't want them here. And I guess there is hope. Northern giant hornets, the murder hornets, they were first found in 2020. Uh, we eliminated one nest that year, and I think another one or two nests the following year. And all surveys post-2020 
2021, so 2022-2023 this year, have not recovered any northern giant hornets in British Columbia or Washington State. We haven't seen them in two years. They may be gone. It looks like maybe we can, if we get it early, control these kind of wasps. We may have done that with the yellow-legged hornet. Um, Hot dog. It was a news story. It didn't blow up like murder hornets did. I think because the name's not there. Right. They they tried. They tried. Every every news item you did see about it was like cousin to the murder hornet. Like they yeah. they were linking to it. So yeah, but they're not as big. They're not as scary. It didn't quite take off, but it was it was a media media issue for about a week until yeah. the public forgot about it. I printed out the fact sheet and stuck it on the wall and was like, I don't want to hear about it. Like if you're <laughs> gonna call about this, here's the fact sheet. We're not gonna see them in Nebraska. Thanks no. for calling. Goodbye. Well, that's the other thing is there has been some niche modeling work done with these things. And if you look, Pennsylvania, at least, is like right at the very northern edge of where they think they might occur in North America if they establish like they may not even be able to establish here. So even if they got here, it may not be a problem, at least for me. Like I'm still waiting for the Joro spider. I want to see one of them. Right? Yeah. That's the yellow-legged hornet. Yellow-legged hornet. Let's leg on over to Jody's next story. Okay, my story is the homegrown malaria. So this Ooh. was maybe reported in, in August. This year, 2023, there were nine cases of locally acquired malaria in the U.S. This was found between May and August. There were seven cases in Florida, one in Texas, and one in Maryland. And the one in Maryland was a different... Malaria species? Yeah, five different species. And so one of them was different, and that was the one in Maryland which they believe is the malaria that they have in sub-Saharan Africa. The one that was in Florida and Texas, all of those was Plasmodium vivax. And so those are South American species. There have been no other reports of local transmission since mid-July. It was the one in August that was a single case in Maryland, we shouldn't worry too much, and I can explain a little bit of reason why. There are five species of protozoan parasite of the genus Plasmodium, which can cause malaria, and different species will cause different severity of the disease. Sometimes it's very severe, and sometimes it's not. So the one that was found in Maryland was the very severe kind. All of the people that were diagnosed were treated and have improved. But like it's a very big worldwide, over 240 million cases occur, 95% of them occurring in Africa. And almost all of the cases that we get reported in the U.S. are from people traveling to countries that have malaria transmission. And that's usually, and they say up before the COVID-19 was about 2,000 per year. And then approximately 300 of those people experience severe disease and five to 10 people with malaria um, will die annually. And we used to have endemic malaria up until the 1950s when it was eliminated. Scientists think that a person was infected with malaria, traveled to the U.S. from that malaria endemic area, and then was bitten by a local Anopheles mosquito, which picked up the parasite and then bit someone else, passing it on. And that also occurred with the Maryland infection, but that one was from Africa. So the reason why we shouldn't be worried about it is because we live in an environment that doesn't really let that mosquito 
populations increase. So if we had that, then they would be here and they would have more of a population to feed on infected people and therefore be able to spread it. You're talking about the disease triangle, sort of? Yeah, because you need the pathogen and you need the mosquito and then you need the person. So, I mean, we do have the Anopheles mosquitoes, but not all of them are going to be infected with malaria parasite and their lifespan is different here than it is in sub-Saharan Africa or in South America. So a lot of these cases are going to be isolated cases and not larger outbreaks. So we would need like infected mosquitoes that we're going to feed on people. So even if we had infected mosquitoes, the Anopheles mosquitoes we have here are likely to bite a different kind of animal. Whereas in sub-Saharan Africa, the Anopheles mosquitoes there, they bite humans 98% of the time. And so their relationship is a little different. It kills over 600,000 people a year. And a lot of them, like 95% of them being children under the age of five. So it really has to do with that disease triangle that you were talking about. And this is a hardship that, yeah, the United States hasn't known in generations, right? I mean, this was 1951, 1952. I think the National Eradication Program ended. There was this really concentrated effort here. It's actually something I've wanted to do an episode about uh, because it was this great big push to wipe out malaria in this country. I think an audacious plan. Malaria is like the grim specter of our species that nobody seems to appreciate just like how bad it's been for humans over the millennia. And we wiped it out here. So if it gets reintroduced, you're talking about having to restart this cooperative campaign that was well-funded and use technology that we don't have access to anymore. Something that probably couldn't happen in today's political climate, frankly. So it is a little scary, but I appreciate you spitting some facts and kind of pushing back and saying, maybe it won't be as bad as we're afraid. And and before last this year, the last recorded locally acquired malaria cases were recorded in 2003. There was eight cases and they were recorded in a specific county. So it was Palm Beach County in Florida, and that was July to September. So it was very, it was less of what we're talking here because there's three different states. And so that right. could could have been alarming. And yeah, what you were saying about eliminating it is different than eradication because eradication means worldwide elimination. Right. So elimination here in, in the U.S. As, as an endemic disease. Thank you. All right, I'm going to wrap up the news roundup with one that I thought was really weird, and I had several questions on this summer. Uh, The wasps and gasoline life hack that was popular on TikTok. I like that we're coming full circle going back to TikTok, because I feel like TikTok is going to be a factor in all of our lives that we had never anticipated as extension people going forward, because more and more people are using TikTok as the internet, uh, and people go to it and see it as an alternative to Google. And I think I read a statistic the other day that over half of people under 25 use TikTok before they use Google and may not even use Google as a search engine. They'll just go to TikTok and say how to kill bed bugs and they'll they'll find stuff there that they're going to use as their information source. I mean, Google kind of sucks now. So Yeah, I mean it's hard to to be disappointed in people for not doing that because yeah, Google is like ads, 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 then people who paid to be at the top. Maybe some university stuff in there if you're looking for that kind of information. But I think that this is demonstrative that TikTok is an avenue that people like us got to be on because if we're not, we're missing out on a whole crowd of people to talk to. 
And you're going to see weird things on TikTok, I think, uh, because it's the world and people are going to try and do different things. And I had a weird media request this summer. Somebody said, we want to check the veracity of the claim that gasoline will kill wasps if you put it in a cup and hold it over their nest. And I was like, yes, next question, please. (laughs) Like, that seems like a very simple one. But they sent me a link to a video. And in the video, there is a man with a like a McDonald's cup or a, a Slurpee cup. And he has filled it up, looks like a third to half full with just regular unleaded gasoline. And they're explaining in the video that they have all these wasps and that he figured out this new hack to killing wasps, which is you take this cup of gas, you walk up to the wasp nest, if you're tall enough or you get a ladder if you're not, and then you push the cup up against the wood or whatever surface is behind the wasp nest, you form a seal. And then in the video, they claim basically that the fumes paralyze the wasps, they fall off the nest, and they die in the gasoline. And then it's no muss, no fuss. It's this real easy pest control method. It doesn't involve toxic pesticides. It does. <laughs> it doesn't involve. Uh, there was lots of things that people have have said about it, basically, and that it's easy to dispose of is one big thing. Like it, you just kill them, and now you don't have to worry about it. I I have found I there were. That that video was watched millions and millions of times. And then there were subsequent videos, follow-up videos, people tagging in on it, duetting with it, as they say on the TikToks. I'm hip. I'm cool. I know what they say. They were talking about how it works and, you know, try this hack at home. It just, to me, like the whole thing is dangerous just off the bat because they're all doing it in broad daylight. Jody, what's the number one rule with wasp control? Nighttime. Yeah. Nighttime, people. <laughs> you want to get them when they're asleep. <laughs> when they're all in the nest. Right. Read and the they're not out war. foraging so they don't come back and sting you. Right. Uh, so right off the top, I would say that's not good to be doing it during the daytime. You're also putting a flammable, toxic, poisonous liquid into a flimsy plastic cup. And then people were slamming this onto the eaves of their house. Um, I didn't see it in any of the ones that I watched, but I have, I've had those cups. They split, they crumple. Uh, this is a very easy opportunity, I think, to end up with gas all over yourself. And if you get enough gas on you, you will die. Uh, so that's not good. Uh, gas is flammable. There's lots of opportunities to create spark or flame when you're doing something like this. Uh, people also smoke. So I, to me, like... There's all, all ample opportunity to immolate yourself or to set your house on fire. And then the disposal thing, I think right off is also a falsehood. Like it's incredibly tough to get rid of gas if it's spoilt in some way. Like you can't dump it. You shouldn't dump it on the ground. You shouldn't dump it down the drain. You should not take it on a plane. It, it's something that you have to take to hazardous waste disposal and have gotten rid of. Uh, you can't put the wasp gas in your car. So I, to me, like it's a waste of gas, which is a non-renewable resource that poisons our planet anyway. Mike, what do you think? You're, you're making lots of faces over there. Claiming that it's not toxic is just insane. Like it's not a chemical. That's, Are you people idiots? Well, so I don't want to say, I don't want to put words in their mouth and say that they said it wasn't toxic, but they very much were focused on the fact that it's not a pesticide. Which, I mean, but it is a pesticide because you're killing a pest with it. Right, right. But it's not a chemical made by a company for the explicit purpose of pest control. For some reason, like some of the ones I watched, they almost talked about it like an essential oil. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, it was kind of weird. Yeah. The other part, well, just for disposal, like, are they just burning it? Like, oh yeah, get your wasp in there and just light the thing on fire. Cause like, I can see that being an easy disposal method if you have a fire pit or something. Right. But, like, I, that's nobody, about it. Nobody followed up on that part. My, my fear was they just dumped it on the ground. Well, that's like, insane. Yeah. That's terrible. Kill your grass if nothing else. Yeah. But people, I mean, we, when you have something like gas, gas you're exposed to every day, right? Like it's such a casual thing that we're exposed to. I think people, they don't fully grok how toxic it could be. Like if you how get enough gas on is. your skin, you will have, you will get screwed up. Like you, there are, there are lots of things that can happen to you. You could have chemical pneumonia. If you huff gas, it's all bad. Yeah. It's, also, it's all bad. All yeah. bad. Like I, I do that method, but not with gas in the cup. I just put it over top of the paper wasp nest and do like cardboard or whatever over top. And then it falls in and then I'll, Stick it in the freezer. See, easy, I was easy. trying to tell some of these people that I spoke with about you could have soapy water in there and probably nice. achieve essentially the same thing. Because in the videos that I watched, this is the part that I thought maybe we could parse apart. A lot of them there, and then the, like the subsequent articles, they all said it instantly asphyxiates the wasps or it stuns them. Like they breathe the gas fumes in and they're stunned and they drop into the liquid below. I think I mentioned this on the show before. I didn't quite by that i guess there's a chunk of oxygen at the top of the cup that's not filled with gas like there is a vapor lock i guess or a vapor in there so they're going to breathe it in but would gasoline work faster than like ethyl acetate in a kill jar which takes a few moments nail polish remover no. like the killing jar yeah yeah nail polish remover would be just as good or something like paint thinner that is toxic but marginally less flammable but do you think that this is an instantaneous asphyxiation like no. is that what's happening because to me it looked like you put the cup there the vibration arouses the wasps they let go of the nest in an attempt to fly they hit the cup and they fell in the gas and then they died because they're yeah. in gas which to me means you could use soapy water or a, a whole host less... of other liquids yeah I was curious about that. I don't know if anybody that listens to the show could illuminate us on that. But like, to me, you put a bug in a kill jar, it struggles for a bit. It's not an instantaneous death, which they're sort of claiming is happening in these videos. But it was big news. Millions of people were reading this and trying it, it sounded like. It is not a life hack. We have long known that gasoline will kill bugs. And we have long known that we shouldn't play around with gasoline. So please don't do it even though you saw some people do it on TikTok. I, I think that it's a fire hazard. It's a poisoning hazard. And you could just straight up get stung by wasps. Uh, so not a, not a good situation all around. We've picked apart a lot of news today. We've covered a lot of ground. Talked about different swarms, different showers of worms that aren't worms. Uh, talked about wasps and gasoline. We hope you've enjoyed. If you had an interesting insect news item that you saw this year and you want to share it, you can shoot it at us on Twitter. I will not call it X. Uh, we're at Arthro underscore pod show there. We're all on Twitter ourselves. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me, UNL. And I'm at Mscavarla36 and on Blue Sky at Napoleonic Ento. You can also find the show on the web. We are Arthro pod.blogspot on the internet. Uh, you can find us on all your favorite podcatchers by using Arthro pod. Uh, you can even find us on places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
Uh, on Spotify, we've been getting listener feedback, like on, on the different episodes. They can leave comments on them. And so if you saw an interesting insect news item that you want to share, put it on there, and I'll find it here in the next few days after the show drops. Uh, maybe we will sp- we'll be able to respond to you on the show if you do that. But we appreciate everybody for helping us make a successful 2023. Uh, we appreciate all your support for the podcast. All the ratings and reviews have been very helpful this year, and they help guide us and, and move us forward. If you have ideas for the show in 2024, you can share those. Beyond that, we're looking forward to being your your favorite bug podcast in 2024 and beyond. We hope you have a happy new year and have a, a great start to the next year. Bye. Bye. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod Gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Which one should I do first? That is a very personal question. Okay. I'll leave okay. that to you I'll and your God. Think. Okay. Bothamon, Jody's favorite deity. <laughs> what? Uh, oh. I don't even know what you're talking about. That's why it's funny. Okay. Five. Just checking. Four. Three, two, one.